daughter was actually born here. Um, so when we arrived here in 1995, so 95 to 97 it was, we'll get it right now, it was 95 to 97. Um, when we arrived here, Sue was six months pregnant and, um, uh, and uh, Emily was born up in what is now the apartments which is the Queen Victoria Hospital up there. Uh, and you know, we have very, very fond memories of our time here in this place. Um, it's a great privilege and joy for, for, for me to be back here and for us to be here together. Um, you know, we, we just so greatly value Tim and Sharon and their leadership, but more than that, their friendship. Um, those of you who don't, don't know, and I won't go into all the details, I might have an opportunity to share more about this in our session later on. Uh, the last uh, year or two in our movement has been very, very challenging, and uh, it's been the support and encouragement and prayer and uh, just the leadership that people like Tim and Sharon have shown us and the A2A movement have been incredibly, incredibly um, supportive of us in this season that has been so incredibly helpful. So I just want to honour Tim and Sharon, particularly for their leadership. We love what God is doing in and through the A2A movement and what we see God doing here at Tail Race. It's the first time Sue's had the opportunity to see this amazing facility that God has blessed you with. And I mean, our church on the Gold Coast, New Life Church, uh, we're blessed with incredible facilities as well. And you know, we have a lot of community engagement, so we feel a real kindred spirit with what you are doing here. We call our church a 7-Eleven church, that is open from 7 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, seven days a week. There's always stuff going on. I think you guys probably beat us, I think it's probably 7 till 1am or something like that here at this place, but, but we love, um, you know, the, the opportunity that as church we have to not just gather on Sundays, but to bless our community 24-7 throughout the week. Uh, we really believe that the Church of Jesus Christ is called to be salt and light and be a transforming presence in the cities that God has placed us in. Now, you're in a series at the moment called uh, uh, Emotional Healthy Spirituality and um, the topic that I was encouraged to reflect on today was what it means to be an emotionally healthy or mature adult. I feel underqualified for that, I have to say, uh, and Sue will back me up on that. But um, I'm, I'm going to reflect a little bit. I mean, that's a huge topic. And uh, I mean, the work of Pete Scazzaro, who I'll be quoting a little bit later on, who, who really has developed this whole concept of emotional, healthy spirituality. Um, the, 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 the topic of what it means to be an emotionally healthy adult is a massive one. And I want to focus in on one particular way I think that um, God chooses to mature us and that's the gift of trials, the gift, the gift of trials. And the way in which trials mature us, I mean, uh, trials are a means of, of maturing us into what it means to be an emotionally healthy adult. And, and how do I define, for me, when I think of what it means to be an emotionally healthy adult, uh, you know, I can't help but think that um, someone who reflects the very character and nature of Jesus it was what it means to be an emotionally healthy adult. I can't think of anyone better uh, to model my life on or, or to aspire to be like than like Jesus. At New Life, we have our vision statement, as every church does, and it's very simply this, more people, more like Jesus. In other words, more people meeting Jesus and coming to saving faith in Him and more people growing in Him uh, and, and maturing in Him. And, and the Apostle Paul has this uh, way of, I, I guess, articulating what is the, the journey of, of, of Christian faith. 
Uh, and in Romans, in particular, first eight chapters, he outlines this in this wonderful, beautiful, powerful, articulate way that, that we're justified by faith. That is, that we have this powerful encounter with Jesus where, uh, where we, we are transformed by his grace and, and we enter into that, that life of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, where we're saved. Uh, but then we're sanctified by grace and sanctified literally means that we're, we're purified, that is, we're transformed day by day into the image of Jesus. That, we, that the journey of faith begins here, but it's meant to continue. We, we don't just wait until we die, but over the, over the period, over the journey of our life, we become more and more like Jesus by His grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're justified by faith, we're sanctified by grace, and then one day, God willing, we'll be glorified in Christ Jesus. Because here's what I know. When I see Jesus face to face, the Scriptures tell me I will be like Him. I can't wait for that day. Uh, I can't wait for the day that I'll be like Him. And when I see Him face to face, that will be the inheritance that I, that we receive when we live in and through Him. But in the meantime, God God doesn't wait until then to do that work of transformation. He uses uh, this life to transform me from the inside out to become more and more like Jesus. And so we're going to look at that today. And we're not going to be looking at Colossians today. We're going to be looking at the letter of James. And so if you've got your Bible, if it's on your phone, if you've got, like me, you're old school and you've got one of these, this is called a Bible, folks, uh, then I'd ask you to pull it out. And we're going to look at the first four verses. And we're going to look at how God matures us, uh, how He matures us through the gifts of trials. We're going to look at the first four verses. I'm going to read it, then we're going to pray, then we're going to jump in. We're going to go through it verse by verse. This is how it starts. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, there's that word, and complete, not lacking anything, not lacking anything. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. So gracious God, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you that faith is an adventure that you call us to step into and you enable us to step into. God, we pray this morning as we reflect on your word that you might speak to us, God, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see and hearts willing to respond to your word of truth contained in these ancient words that come alive to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen. So we're going to work through it verse by verse. Let's have a look at this first verse. So James, I don't know about you, but when I get to introductions like this, I'm likely to skip past them, but there's something in this verse, so just hang with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, the first question we have to ask is, well, who the heck is James? Now, that's, it's an interesting question because the New Testament actually lists six different men with the name James. It must have been a popular name back in the first century. And, and in fact, there were two disciples of Jesus, two of the twelve who had the name James. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. There was James, the son of Zebedee. But what most Bible scholars suggest to us is this, that the James that wrote this letter in around the year 48 AD, so just a couple of decades or decade and a half after the events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, 
that the James that wrote this, of all the, the, the possibilities, was literally James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph, otherwise known throughout tradition and history as James the Just. So what do we know about James, the brother of Jesus? Well, we know that through the three years of Jesus' public ministry, he was something of a sceptic. He, he wasn't quite sure whether his half-brother really was the Messiah, but we know again through the, through the testimony of the Scriptures that, that James, the brother of Jesus, James the Just, was one of the first people that Jesus, in his resurrected form, appeared to. And it appears that when, when, when Jesus rose from the dead and when he appeared to his brother in resurrected form, James had an epiphany, he had a conversion experience, he became a follower of Jesus. I don't know about you, but if my brother rose himself from the dead, I would also have a conversion experience in that moment. And so, James, the brother of Jesus, after that point, after the resurrection appearance of Jesus, he was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell on those who were gathered, when the church was given birth. And soon after that, we read through the Acts of the Apostles that James became one of the key leaders in the early Christian church, particularly based in Jerusalem. As Peter and Paul and others were sent out on missionary journeys, James became perhaps the key leader in the church in Jerusalem. Let me talk to you about another key figure of history. You might know him as Prince Philip. Now, Prince Philip recently retired from active public duty, which is fair enough when you're 98 years young, I reckon. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good retirement age. Probably should retire from driving cars as well, but that's a whole other story. But if you were to go to uh, a state dinner where the Queen and Prince Philip were in attendance... When, uh, if you were, you would wait, they'd be the last people to enter into the room and as he entered the room, before he entered the room, he would be officially introduced to you and this would be his official introduction. This is his official title. His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Merinoeth, Baron Greenwich, Royal Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, Grand Master and First Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Knight of the Order of Australia, Additional Member of the Order of New Zealand, Extra Companion of the Queen's Service Order, Royal Chief of the Order of Loggerhue, Extraordinary Companion of the Order of Canada, Extraordinary Commander of the Order of Military Merit, Canadian Forces Decoration, Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council, Member of the Queen Privy's Council for Canada, Personal Aide de Camp to His Majesty King George VI, Lord, Most, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom, 147 words. By the time you sat down, your soup would be cold. <laughs> You'd be waiting for the second course. What is my point? If you were the brother, even the half-brother of Jesus, and you were writing a letter to the early Christian church, wouldn't you be tempted to write something like this, as by way of introduction? James the Just from the sacred womb of Mary, the mother of our Lord, the confidant of the Messiah. You'd be, you would be, I would be, perhaps it's just me, I would be tempted to lay out all my credentials for everyone to see. But what does James do? He doesn't call on his identity as the half-brother of Jesus. He literally says, James, a servant of God. Here, we'll go back. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, 
greetings. Literally what that word servant is translated from is the word doulos, which means servant or slave. So what James is saying, he's not claiming any special treatment, any special identity, except that which he has through Jesus Christ, not as his half-brother, but as his saviour and as his Lord. He's expressing humility, solidarity, authority with others. Now, we live in a culture that's obsessed with titles, with achievements, with status. We live in a culture that, that says to us that I am what I have achieved, that I am the titles I have accumulated, that I am the status that I have earned. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims is this, that my identity is not in what I have achieved, my identity is in what God has achieved for me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where my identity lays. My status isn't in the balance of my successes and failures, it's in the grace and favour that's mine now and forever through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not who the world says I am. I'm not who I say I am. I'm not who anyone says I am. I am who God says I am and this is who I am. I'm a son of the God, of son of God. I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm a servant of the living, living, resurrected King. So no longer do I need to strive to measure up because in Jesus Christ I have been lifted up in Him. And so I have freedom, freedom from trying to earn any status, freedom from trying to convince others of how successful or how important I am because in Jesus Christ my status is secure. And there's so much freedom in that. Do you have that freedom this morning? Knowing who you are, but more importantly, whose you are. That you have been purchased at a price. James, he writes, to the 12 tribes scattered throughout uh, the, the, the Roman Empire. Who were they? Who was he writing to? Well, what we know of that time is around the year 48 AD and persecution had already broken out against the church. We know the story of Stephen and others and, and this great persecution that came upon the church and, and pushed much of the church out of Jerusalem into Samaria and other places, <laughs> ironically spreading with them the gospel. And, and so the early Christian church, mostly Jewish Christians at this point in time, I mean, Paul's missionary journeys to the Gentiles was only just beginning. They were a persecuted minority. They had been, in large part, thrown out of the synagogue, out of their places of worship. They'd been ostracised by family. In many cases, they had lost their employment. So, in other words, they'd lost their place within their own culture, but also they had lost their place within the political environment of the day because not only were they, were they treated as uh, traitorous Jews by their own community, they also were treated as traitors to the Roman Empire because they dared to declare that it wasn't Caesar who was Lord, it was Jesus who was Lord. And so they were doubly persecuted within their own culture, but also within their own political environment. And so these were believers who were enduring much suffering and hardship, which makes what James says all the more radical. We read on in verse 2. Here's what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, this is not what you would typically read in a self-help book, would it? 
This is counterintuitive advice, both then and now. In our culture, we do anything we can to mitigate, to avoid, to suppress pain. But here, James, the brother of Jesus, saying, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials or hardships of any kind. What is pure joy? Well, it's unambiguous. It's utter, overflowing, all-encompassing, life-defining joy. Joy in full. What are trials? Well, very simply, they're unwelcome or unanticipated events. Now, for first century Christianity, as I said before, it was a trial-rich environment. There were a lot of trials that people were going through. They were losing jobs. They were losing livelihood. They were losing connection with family. They were losing their place within community. They were slandered in the marketplace. Some were being beaten. Some were literally losing their lives. It was a trial-rich environment. What does that have to do with us today? We, we live in a culture that's increasingly post-Christian, but persecution at that level is not our experience. It is in other places of the world, but that's not to say that we don't experience our own sorts of trials. That is unexpected and unwelcome events in our life. It might be that a trial that you're going through right now is a medical diagnosis which is uncertain or is too certain. A trial you might be going through right now is a betrayal in a marriage relationship that's left you gutted. A trial that you might be experiencing right now is uncertainty around your employment or your financial status. I mean, trials are part of the everyday nature of the life that we live. And so this room is a room full of people who are facing trials, large and small, unexpected or unwelcome events. And if you're not in a trial right now, you know because you've experienced it before, there's a trial just around the corner. Something that you don't expect and you wouldn't necessarily welcome. Why are trials so endemic? Why are they so much a part of the ebb and flow of life? Why do, as the philosophers would ask, why do bad things happen to good people like us? Like you and me. Why are trials so endemic? Well, trials are part and parcel of the ebb and flow of life within a fallen world. That is a world that has collectively and individually, it has to be said, have turned their back, our back on God. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have betrayed our relationship with God in large and small ways. And one of the symptoms of that fallen world is the trials and tribulations that we face. We live in a broken, fractured world. A world that's out of step with the divine order. But we also live in a world where there is a force of evil that is personified in, in Satan, the devil, who seeks to kill and rob and destroy. And one of the outworkings of that is the suffering and the pain that we endure. And when I read the Scriptures, when I read particularly the New Testament, what I discover is this, that, that trials are inevitable for the believer. I mean, there, there is, a, a, there is a, a certain view in some Christian settings that when you become a Christian, or it can, I don't think it's explicitly said, but sometimes it's implicitly communicated, that when you become a Christian, all of your trials and tribulations disappear. Can I use a theological word to describe what I think of that rubbish? In fact, the Scriptures teach that quite the opposite is the case, that when we decide to become a follower of Jesus, not only will our trials and tribulations continue, but in many ways, in some cases, they'll actually increase. 
Jesus himself said to his disciples, in this world you will have what? Trouble. But do not fear because I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but we are not without hope. Following Jesus, we're more likely to face trials than not. But here's the promise in those trials, the promise of spiritual maturity, that we can find meaning and purpose and promise in our trials. James says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance. Now, because you see, trials, by their very nature, they, uh, they test, they prove the quality of something or someone through adversity. Just think about it this way. And when the Navy launches a new ship, what it will do after it's built in the shipyard, after all the design process, after all the manufacturing process, it, the, the, the ship will, will, will slip down the slipway into the sea. And before it's commissioned for service, before it's put into active service, it'll undergo a series of what they call sea trials. And what those sea trials will do will not prove whether the boat can float. One would hope that the boat is designed to float. But whether the boat is fit for purpose, that it's ready to be commissioned for the service for which it's been designed. And so the ship will be put through a series of manoeuvres to deliberately put it under pressure, as much pressure as it's engineered to take, in order to make sure that what it's been designed for is ready to carry out. And based on those sea trials, the, the the ship will come back into dock and any adjustments that need to be made from an engineering point of view will be made because it's being made fit for purpose. See, the trials that we face, the trials that we face are not to test if we have faith, not to test whether our life can float, but the testing of our faith so as to strengthen it. Like sea trials actually are are not used to test whether the boat can float, but to strengthen the boat in order that it can be fit for purpose. And that's what God can use trials for, to mature us, to strengthen us, ready for his service. Hmm. Trials are used to strengthen our faith as we develop perseverance. I mean, one of the things, one of the great mysteries that it needs to be named here, and I don't have time to answer it, I'm not even sure if I can answer it, realistically. Are trials allowed by God? Are they sent by God? What are the origin of trials? I I think at the very least what I would say today is this and what I think the scriptures teach through the witness of those who've gone before us and through what the great teachers like Paul and others offer us is at the very least at times trials are allowed by God. He creates a space for trials in our life that we might be made mature in and through him that he might work all things together for good for those who are called according to his name. Now, one of the great heroes of faith that uh, has inspired me over the years is a man called Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century uh, British Baptist pastor who was one of the first, I suppose, what we would call today megachurch pastors. He was a phenomenal preacher and in his early 20s, he uh, developed a great following He published a lot of books and tracts and tens of thousands of people would flock to hear him preach. He was a world-renowned preacher both in the UK but also in the USA and to this day, millions of people read his work. He was just a a phenomenal Bible teacher. But what many people don't know about Charles Spurgeon is that for most of his adult life, he struggled with crippling depression. 
with crippling mental health illness. It was so bad that there would be weeks on end where he would literally not be able to get out of bed. And remember, this is back in the day when we didn't have the understanding we do about mental health conditions. We didn't have the medication to help us overcome that. We didn't have the psychological services, the counselling services, even the biblical framework to understand what the origin of depression might be. But it was a crippling disease that, that marked his life from beginning to end, his adult life and, and the ministry that he had. But one of the things you discover about Charles Spurgeon, through this incredibly difficult trial, he trusted the why. I mean, he would have had the question like you and I have when we face trials, why me, God? Why now? Why won't you heal me? Why won't you answer my cry? And I'm sure as we read through Charles Spurgeon's work that he asked all of those questions, but in the end he trusted the wider God. He leaned into the sovereignty and the goodness of God. This is what he wrote in one of his memoirs. He said this, The sovereignty of God is the pillow on which the child of God rests their head. He would trust his why to God. So we don't endure trials with fatalism, that this is just our lot. I deserve it. This must be just how it's going to be. This is a script that's written for my life. We don't endure trials with fatalism. That's what not, not what Charles Spurgeon did. We persevere in them with faith, knowing that in our trials, God is up to something. He's doing something and something good in and through them. Let's read on. Let's have a look at the last couple of verses. It says this, And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. See, endurance or perseverance is not the goal. Maturity or perfection, sanctification in Christ, that is the goal. Here's what I've come to understand, what I'm coming to understand, because this is still a process for me, that when I surrender my trials to God, those same trials can sandblast me, if you like, more and more into the image of Jesus, more and more into spiritual maturity, that surrendered to God, suffering can be sanctifying, that surrendered to God, pain can be perfecting. Pete Scazzaro, who wrote all there is to know about emotional, healthy spirituality. He said this, God comes to our lives disguised as setbacks, disappointment and people who drive us crazy. If that person's in the room right now, look at them right now, okay? No, don't look at them right now. <laughs> he is present and if we are open, we'll see him in these experiencing, experiences, allowing him to form and free us through them. God can use our trials, particularly when we're prepared to surrender them to Him. Trials can be sanctifying. Pain can be perfecting when we surrender them to Him. Again, just going back to Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on his lifelong struggle with mental health issues, with depression, he said this, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have on the bed of pain. How many of us can say amen to that? We never choose seasons of pain that we go through, but we know that God can work all things together for good. God can work all things together for good. 
when we're prepared to surrender those things to him. And as I said before, this is a room. I know this because I'm a pastor. We know all these things. Not really. Well, I know this because it's the human condition, not because I'm a pastor. This is a room full of trials, pain and suffering. That's not the question. The question is, what will we do with our trials, our pain and our suffering? Some of you here are facing chronic illnesses or you're living with a chronic illness. Some of you are facing an uncertain diagnosis or you know someone in your world that does, even a terminal illness. Some of us, like I have in the past, are struggling with a mental health illness or a marriage that's turned south or money worries. This is a room full of trials, pain and suffering. But here's also the truth. In fact, this is the even greater truth. This is a room overflowing with the presence, power and promise of God. Because in our trials, as Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but do not fear because I have overcome the world. In our trials we have Jesus, who is our example, our strength and our gold. In our trials, Jesus is our example. I mean, we read, (laughs) when we read of Jesus and the prophetic word about Jesus in the Old Testament, in particular, in the prophet Isaiah, that Jesus was predicted to be the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel was predicted to be a suffering servant, the one that, who would be acquainted with pain and grief and suffering like a normal human being would encounter. And we read in the, in the story of Jesus from beginning to end, from his temptation in the wilderness to, his, to the, that moment in the garden where he literally sweats drops of blood as he prays to the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass me by, this cup of suffering, but not my will, but yours, he says. That from beginning to end, Jesus' life was marked by trials, by pain and by suffering. And so we do not have a God who's on the edge of the universe with his arms folded, looking on indifferently at his human beings, those created in his image, wondering, I wonder what it must be like to be them. He knows our pain. He knows our suffering because he chose to enter into it. He came to us in the form of his son, not just to identify with our pain, with our suffering, with our trials, but to show us a way through them, to overcome them, to live in victory in and through and over. And so Jesus, he shows us the way. He surrendered his will to the sovereign will of the Father. The good news that we celebrate here in this place, but every time we gather, is that we worship a God who's not indifferent to our pain, indifferent to our trials, but who embraced our pain in order to redeem it and to restore us. So in our trials, Jesus is our example. But also in our trials, Jesus is our strength. Have you ever heard the saying, God will never give you more than you can handle? Who said that saying? No one, it's just me. God will never give you more than you can handle. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Let me explain. God will never give you more than you can handle in his strength. In his strength. Because some of us labour under the illusion, I have it within me on my own. 
to endure the trials, the tribulations, the pain, the suffering I have. I've tried that route. It does not work. I do not have it in me. You do not have it in you to live in victory in and through this life. But in Jesus Christ, you can have the victory. You can have the victory. God will never give us more than we can handle with and through him. It says, not in us to persevere in trials towards perfection, but in his strength we can. And the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest follower of Jesus who has ever lived, he articulated this so powerfully and so beautifully when he writes the church in Corinth, a, a church that, uh, that was struggling with self-control in a whole range of different ways. And he writes them and he's incredibly vulnerable with them as a leader. He writes them and he shares how um, he had endured this trial, this particular, what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it is and Bible scholars have, have wondered about this over the centuries. But the reality is we don't know what it is. We don't know what the particular trial was, what the thorn in the flesh was. But we know that in this trial, in this, in this time of pain and suffering, that Paul cries out to God in desperation. He knows he doesn't have it in himself to overcome. He says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, take away this trial. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He knew, Paul knew, that he could know God's presence and power most especially in his weakness, in his trial. More often than not, we acquaint God's presence with the mountaintop experiences we have in our life and they are wonderful and they're real and they're beautiful. But just as real can be the experience of God's presence, his peace and his power in the deepest and the darkest of valleys. Most especially then can we know his presence. Larry Crabb is a, or was a Christian psychologist. He's retired now. But he tells a really powerful story of what, it likes to, what it's like to live with Jesus and the strength of Jesus in the midst of trials. I want to read this story to you. It's a story from his childhood. He says this, One Saturday afternoon, I decided I was a big boy and could use the toilet without anyone's help. Remember, he was a little child. So I climbed the stairs, closed and locked the door behind me and for the next few minutes felt very self-sufficient. Then it was time to leave. I couldn't unlock the door. I tried with every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. I panicked. I felt again like a very little boy as a thought went through my head. I might spend the rest of my life in this toilet. My parents and likely the neighbours heard my desperate scream. Are you okay? Mother shouted through the door. She couldn't open from the outside. Did you fall? Have you hit your head? I can't unlock the door, I yelled. Get me out of here! I wasn't aware of it right then, but Dad raced down the stairs, ran to the garage to find the ladder, hauled it off the hooks and leaned it against the side of the house just beneath the toilet window. With adult strength, he pried it open, then climbed into my prison, walked past me and with that same strength turned the lock and opened the door. Thanks, Dad, I said, and ran out to play. (laughs) That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. 
when I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up, he hears my cry, get me out of here, I want to play, and unlocks the door to the blessings I desire. Sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realising the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we ever like him when he doesn't open the door we most want open? When a marriage doesn't heal? When rebellious kids still rebel? When friends betray? When financial reserves threaten our comfortable way of life? When the prospect of terrorism looms? When health worsens despite much prayer? When loneliness intensifies and depression deepens? When ministries die? God has climbed through the small window into my dark room but he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play. I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock the door. Dear friend, he goes on to say, the choice is ours. Either we can keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy, to escape our dark room and run to the playground of blessings, or we can accept his invitation to sit with him, for now, perhaps, in darkness, and to seize the opportunity to know him better. Here's what I've come to learn. I never need to be alone in my trials, and neither do you. I know how isolating and have experienced how isolating trials can be, but I know this to be true because I've experienced it and it's a witness and a testimony of the truth of God's word. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of trial. I know this to be true. Jesus said to those who would follow him, I will be with you on mountaintops alone. No, always. I will be with you always through every storm, in every valley, on every mountaintop, through every one of life's experiences, I will be with you always until the end of the age. He is our example. But in our trials, he is our strength. And when he is our strength and we surrender our trial to him, in that moment, not only can we learn what it means to live in victory over our trial, but through that trial, he can mature us into his image that we might become an emotionally healthy adult, but one that's transformed further and further into his image until one day, by his grace, we'll be like him when we see him face to face. Now, I'm learning that every single day. You know, one of the trials that I live with and have for more than 20 years, and that started here in Launceston back in 1996, I think it would have been. I had a medical checkup. I was about to go into Bible college. I'm going off script, by the way, now. I was going into Bible college. I had to do a medical for a superannuation, and I went down to Launceston General Hospital. I saw a physician. He referred me to the LGH to have some tests, and I realised it was quite serious when I went to the cancer outpatients ward. They gave me a bone marrow test. And what they discovered was I had, they didn't, weren't able to uh, properly identify it then, but it was some sort of bone marrow mutation, some sort of problem with my bone marrow, which was causing at that point 
too many platelets in my, in my system. And for the next 15 or so years, I lived with this uncertain diagnosis. They gave it a name, but they weren't quite sure what it was. And then about six years ago, five years ago, I was preaching in our home church back on the Gold Coast. It was just before the 10 o'clock service and the countdown video had started. I was standing down the front and the whole room started to spin like vertigo, you know, just crying. I'd never had it before. I couldn't stand up. I sat down. I couldn't sit up. I lay down. Complete drama queen that I am. They called the ambulance. 400 people in the room and, you know, I'm being wheeled out in a wheelchair and, you know, I said to the children's pastor who had his Kids Life t-shirt on, you're preaching today. They dragged me off to hospital, more tests. And what they discovered through the series of tests I had over the next couple of weeks was that I had um, this condition I've been living with for a long time, a, a post-conception gene mutation we discovered. Now they had the genetic testing to be able to diagnose it, diagnose it properly, was a, a, a form of cancer. Um, chronic at this point in time, but as our cheery haematologist said when we went and visited with him, likely to become acute and terminal at some point. And we sat in that specialist office and we had a choice. Will we be overwhelmed by that or will we surrender it to him? That was five and a half years ago and, I mean, by God's grace, the condition hasn't... I mean, what had happened, you know, leading up to that point of vertigo, the condition had accelerated. And uh, since that time, through the power of prayer and by God's grace, uh, it, it's held stable. And in that time... They haven't developed a cure for the condition I have, but they have, con uh, they have developed a, a gene therapy that will stop it in its tracks. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? But here's what I've learned. God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in my weakness. And here's what I've come to discover. I've actually come to the point where I'm able to thank God for this trial because it's made me, as I've surrendered to him, more like the Jesus I prefer. Humble, more humble than I would otherwise be. More vulnerable, more open as a leader and more trusting of him and his grace and his power. Jesus is our example. He's our strength. And finally, he's our goal. He's our goal. A few years after James writes this letter, the letter of Hebrews is written, and you know this text, many of you. Hebrews 12, chapter one, uh, verses 1 and 2. Let us run with perseverance, the writer says, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. I don't want to become mature for mature's sake. I want to become mature in and like Jesus. I want to become more like him. And here's what I'm discovering. That surrendered to him, trials, suffering can be sanctifying. That pain can be perfecting. And here's what I know to be true. One day I will stand before Jesus, my friend, my saviour, my Lord. And in that moment, I will be like him mature and complete in every way. And no trial in this life surrendered to him will be wasted. No pain will be wasted when I've surrendered it to him. 
he will have used it and worked it together for good, for his purposes and for his glory. And that's my prayer and that's my hope for you, is that together we will learn to surrender our trials to him, that his power may be made perfect in our weakness. And with the witness and testimony of Paul, we might be able to say, your grace, God, is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. Would you stand with us? Here's what I'd like us to do just before we close out the service. Just, just as we stand, just want to close your eyes. As I said before, this is a room full of trials, of pain and suffering. But even more so, this is a room full of the power, the presence of God. The promises of God. And so, right now, you know the trial that you might be in or someone who's close to you might be in. This is what I encourage you to do. Just in this moment, just as an act of surrender, perhaps for the first time, perhaps again, because I'm learning that I need to do this every day. I did it again this morning. I was reading a, a particular scripture where I think it was King, one of the kings of Israel, I think it was King Asa, who was afflicted in, in a particular way, had, had gone to the physicians, but he hadn't cried out to God. And I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How often are you crying out to me in your affliction? And so I just surrendered it again to him. It may be that, that God is calling you to surrender again a particular trial, some suffering that you're going through or someone you know is going through. Then just as a as a sign or a symbol of that surrender just with me I invite you just to put your your hands out in front of you palms up God here it is here's the burden that I carry here's the trial that I feel the weight of here's the pain that that I'm experiencing right now I bring it to you it's too much for me to bear on my own God we bring you not who we think we should be, but who we are. Not who we think you will affirm, but the reality of our condition. We bring you all of our mess, all of our pain, all of our trials. We, we bring them to you. The one who says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke. And here's what I'd love us for us to do now if we feel comfortable doing so, just to, to take our hands from out in front of us, palms up in the way that we have right now, and just to, to lift them up in the air. You know, this is the international not sign of surrender. <laughs> God, I surrender. If you're in a battle that you know is too strong for you to overcome, the sign of surrendering is to is to raise your arms and, and so we surrender now but here's the thing about surrendering to God the other sign that lifting our arms is is a sign of victory if we're, if we're at the football or at a sporting competition and our, and our team kicks the winning goal what do we do? We, we lift our hands in victory so here's the thing about the Christian faith uh, the, the paradox of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that when we surrender we have victory 
when we surrender our trials, our suffering, our pain to Him, the promise on the other side of that surrender is not defeat, it's victory in and through Him. So Jesus, we surrender. We surrender who we are, our trials to You, but in this surrender, we lay hold of the promise of the victory that we have in and through You. Lead us on, we pray, O oh God, on the path towards maturity, becoming more and more like you. And in this world where we have trouble, we choose, we choose to lift up our voices in praise and proclamation that you are King, that you are Lord, that you are Saviour, that you are over all, in all and through all. In your name we pray. And together we say, Amen. Amen. We give him a round of applause this morning. Thank you for that, Stu. I was going to sing this song, I praise the name again.